I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, November 19th on CBC Radio. A few hundred Canadians and people with connections to our country have now managed to leave Gaza. First up today, we'll hear about one Canadian family's harrowing journey and how they're adjusting to life outside the conflict zone. And later on, I'll speak with two people the federal government has charged with combating anti-Semitism and Islamophobia here at home. Also today, we will peer into the future when veteran science journalist Jay Ingram projects how we'll live in the decades ahead. Plus, Kester Semenya is an Olympic champion runner, but questions about her gender have long overshadowed her athletic achievement. Kester will join me to share her own story and her fight for women's rights in sports. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. More than 350 Canadian citizens, permanent residents and their relatives have been allowed to leave Gaza in the past two weeks. Suzanne Harb and her children are among them. Harb is a Canadian citizen who left Gaza with her five kids on November 7th. Her husband Mansour decided to stay behind. He speaks English and has spoken with several international news outlets about what's happening in Gaza. Suzanne and her children are now staying with family in the United Arab Emirates. Suzanne, hello. Yes, hi. It's been um, just around two weeks since you and your five children left Gaza. Um, I know it's been a long ordeal for all of you, and we'll talk about that, but just how are you holding up? How are you doing? To be honest, it's, I don't know, like I'm, I'm trying, you know, to lift myself up and think positive. But it's hard, yeah. It's it's hard. Like every time I laugh or try to enjoy something I'm eating or drinking, I feel it's it's a betrayed. It's it's a sin. I feel so much guilty. At the same time, I know like to take care of the five kids, I I, I need to take care of myself. You said you're feeling guilty. What are you feeling guilty about? 
to know that the people I love, the people I loved, my my brother and sister, my my aunts and cousins, my my friends, the people that I shared memories and good times, they're in danger. I have no idea how they're doing. My husband is there and everyone I I, I loved and, and adored for the last year and a half. So, yeah, I feel guilty leaving and knowing they're not safe. We'll talk about your husband staying behind in Gaza in just a bit. But just take me back to, you know, early October, Suzanne. You, your five kids, your husband, as you say, your extended family, you, you'd been living in Gaza. Tell me what life was like. So it's been a year and a half almost we've been in Gaza. We moved from Canada we after the COVID and, and we thought like the kids were having a hard time after the isolation and things weren't very well for the kids. So we thought like we want to be around the family. So we decided because other Arab countries, you need uh, uh, you need residency, you need the job, you need to have a stable income and all these things. While Gaza, like, you, you can live in a good shape with a, a certain amount of money. Hmm. So we thought, like, okay, this is ideal for us. They can learn more about Palestine, see the family, get along with the culture, and understand things that it's it's hard to understand back in Canada. Um, we were doing very well. The kids were in British International School. I was the well-being counselor. Um, the kids were like dominating the school, the job of the school, getting along with their cousins, knowing the people that they never met before. We were doing very well. We just thought like, okay, this is getting very well for us. So let's just settle down for a bit here. We bought an apartment, we furnished it. And we thought like, this is amazing. We had a cat and Hmm. everything was very good for us, for the kids. Like, but then things were escalating very fast, getting worse and worse. And, and, and we had to evacuate our house we moved to the Shifa Hospital the first time, from Shifa Hospital to Khan Yun, uh, to, to Tal Hawa, from Tal Hawa to Khan Yunus, down and the south then we of the strip. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we stayed there for the last three weeks. Tell me about that. Where did you uh, Where did you stay? What did you eat? How, so, it's 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 hard for us on the outside, kind of just wrapping our heads around like how Gazans like yourself, <clears throat> Canadians in Gaza, what what your life has been like over that time since October 7th until you were allowed to leave? Yeah. So basically at the beginning, we thought we're going to stay in our house, right? So we rushed in the morning. We had like at, at that point, things were still not too much bad. So the supermarket was still open. We rushed. We we did some shopping. We get water bottles. I filled some of the, the, the empty bottles that I have at home. So we had a full fridge. So we were like feeling fine. Like we have everything we need. And within a couple of days, that water, after they cut the electricity, the, the water started getting less and less. 
And we thought like, okay, uh, there was like rumors they're going to bomb the building in front of us. So we ran to the hospital to stay that night in there. And the second we were like thinking there is nothing happened yet. So we should go back home. They start bombing around the Shifa hospital. So we ran from there to Tel El Hawa. We shared this principal of the school I worked at. They took us in and we stayed with them a few nights. We shared their food, their resources, whatever they have. We just shared it. And then we heard that um, the border was open. So my husband told us, like, let's leave. At that point, we thought, like, we we all going to leave. We stayed up until 5 p.m. waiting and nothing happened. And um, one of my cousins live in Khan Yunus. She called me and she's like, you have to come over. So I went and I stayed in her apartment and we were basically four families in 70 meters. The first week we were eating bread and cheese, like this is um, the the cheese boxes because other cheese were rotten, rotten because there is no electricity. Beans, bean cans, tuna cans, whatever cans in the beginning there was, we would eat it. Sometime we'll find in the local market, some uh, veggies, because some of the people who evacuate from East, they brought their farmers. So they brought their produce with them. Hmm. So whatever produce they have will will just have it as it is, as a stew. I, I, I will tell you, Pia, that most of the days we were fasting. Yeah. The, the women, which is me and the other mothers, we would be fasting. So we can reduce the amount of food we have and give more portions for the little ones. Because as as an adult, you, you could feel like you're hungry, but you can't complain, right? But the kids, you can't, you can, I, I couldn't see them complaining about like there isn't enough food or something. We would be fasting most of the days and having one meal oh. and giving the chance for more food for the kids to eat. How are you, ex- I know your kids, they range in age from four to 16. How are you explaining this all to them? Like, it's one thing to be an adult, Suzanne, and we could hear from what you're saying, the, the hardship, the toll this has taken on you, and understandably so. How did you explain this to kids? Uh, the, my older girls, they understood the situation. Um, the little ones, they weren't aware so much what's going on every time they hear the bombs coming down they understand that like we're being bombed now and um we 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 need to stay calm as much as we can and um one of the things that uh happened when we arrived to Khan Yunis was there was a mass bombing. It's just, there's no a special target. Yeah. It, it was like something you don't understand why it's happening because they ask us to move from north to south. And we thought like we be, were safe in, in, in the south area. But we were not. We were not. Like since we arrived until the day I left, there was still bombing around us. And um, there was once where they have five or six buildings just across the street from us. It's it's way less than 50 meters. And I, I it was like around 10 a.m. And me and the kids, uh, me and Umar, would, he, they're 10 years old. 
he was beside me asking for breakfast. I was like trying to collect a signal from the Wi-Fi to, to talk to my mom. And and all of a sudden, I couldn't hear the first, the second, the third bomb. It was like the third, the fourth one that I just hear the impact. And the whoosh came in out through the window where glass, dust, ashes, just name it. And I covered up my boy with my body and the rocks hit me hard all over my body. If I was stand that moment, I would be killed. It took us around 10 minutes to realize that was not even us. It was the building behind us. And one of the buildings was empty. The other buildings collapsed over the people in there. You just see it in movies, right? You, you, you can't realize or it's, it's very hard for us to comprehend the, the moment that happened. I, I, I couldn't imagine like if I was standing or I wasn't, I, I wasn't covering my boy, he would be gone by that moment. You're right, Suzanne. It, it sounds like a, a movie. Even listening to you explain it, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's hard to even imagine. I'm thinking like, how do you even parent through this? How do you take care of your children? How are you not terrified beyond belief. I, I know you were like that, that I understand that. And so um, you get a chance to get out and you leave. And here's yeah a, a decision that you and your husband have to make. And if you could just take me to that moment where your husband says, look, you and the kids go, we're all Canadians. We can get out. I can get out too, but I'm going to stay. Tell me why he yeah. stayed and what that moment was like for you. It was a heartbreaking moment. But I know as a fact, he's an amazing, brave person. And I understand why he did that, because there are 2.3 million people are there. Their voice aren't clear enough to reach to the rest of the world. And for him, as as, as a Canadian, Palestinian citizen, and he know how to deliver the message as a civilian, as someone has nothing to do with anything and deliver a very clear message to the world, what's happening back there. So yeah, it, it was a heartbreaking, but I understand how brave and it was a tough decision. But at the same time, Pia, we don't forget that when we left, it wasn't an easy decision for us as well. Like even the girls were hesitating. Um, here is my daughter Aisha. She's around and she would love to contribute if you don't mind. Sure. How old is she? She's 16. Hi, Aisha. I'm Pia. Hi. How are you doing, darling? Um, you know, usually the answer that you're supposed to say is just, oh, you know, we're doing well, but we're not. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we're we're one of the lucky ones, and it's hard to complain when you're in a situation like this. But how are you getting by? What? How are you holding up? What are you? What are the conversations you're having with yourself? Um, it's it's really weird because when you're there, there's so much happening that you you don't think. You know, you are just on fight or flight mode constantly, even when you're asleep. The sound of a cough wakes you up because in the back of your head you know that at any moment your the corner of your eye has to stay on the door in case you have to flee like we did have to multiple times so when you're out of that situation it feels like you were like someone shoved your head in the water and then they just pulled you out all of a sudden it's it's really it's weird because your brain is finally 
trying to process everything and you kind of don't want it to, you know? You don't you don't want to deal with any of the feelings that you left behind. And now you're safe. What are you doing now in the UAE to you know, just try and make it feel somewhat better? Honestly, I would prefer to spend my day sleeping. <laughs> We're just very very tired. I have a lot of like pressure around me yeah. to go to school, <laughs> which is which is really weird to me. I was like, no. And my relatives, they were like, but it would be such a shame for you to miss this year of school. I was like, no, it wouldn't. We want to go. Like, it would really, really hurt to have to go to another school after I had a home in a school over there, you know? You know, I was a big part of the community. Yeah. And to all just shatter under my feet so quickly it i i don't want to have another life here you know i don't want to have to start over how's your papa we haven't talked to him that much because the communications are like always cutting off but i i think he's doing well <laughs> i think that he's doing something good and that he made that decision himself so you know we can only pray for his safety you're proud of him huh for staying behind yeah, it's he is he's he's he has a big effect, you know. Like not a lot of people that speak English have the guts to do interviews sleep in a tent and do interviews all day. <laughs> yeah, knowing that he does get a lot of backlash, but he's also basically talking to billions of people and you know correcting misinformation and all that stuff. And Pia, the, there's one of the things that. I, I believe people m missing it here, like for us feeling that we want to go back and other people like, why? It's not safe there. But you don't understand when when you like as, as, as for me and the kids came from Austrian society who has so much knowledge to contribute and add. We were a window for them hmm. to the rest of the world. And I took so much pride to bringing such an amazing effort. I can hear I, it. Yeah, and, and, and this is why we were there, because as someone who came from an open culture, you have so much ideas, you have so much to bring in to, to, to people who suffered for long, long years, for little resources. All these things, we felt were doing amazing job. What are you going to do now? You've been out in the UAE now for just days. And I, I you know, I, I ask you this thinking like, what a jerk question, Pia. She's, you expect her to have a plan and like, but, and I don't, I just, I'm wondering honest, what you're thinking. Our plan for now to survive, just, I, 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 I took the kids for therapy where I'm trying to maintain a good life for them, but I don't know. I mean, the girls refusing any other school. They, they're they waiting for the wards to end and, and go back to their school. They want to join the rest of the kids and do what they were doing. For me, I'll do everything to make sure that they're having a good life. At this moment, I'm just trying to take care of the kids and, and finding a way to Keep them safe mentally, physically, and and spiritually. What about Canada? I know I know you've said like I, I'm here. I've got support. I've got family, and your husband. You're on the same time zone. Yeah. Even like all those very practical things. Any thought of coming here? Yeah. 
We would love to, but unfortunately, meanwhile, it's winter time, right? Starts all over again. And in Canada, like I need to find a job immediately to to feed the kids. I, I need so many resources. I need to find a house. I need so much things and without their father it's going to be way difficult and 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 it's without family it's it's going to be really difficult especially after you live around the family and and you you, you experience the warm and and the support that you had it's it's very very difficult for me to go and and do it right now i i won't be able to do it by myself now mm. Suzanne, I can't thank you enough um, for for talking with us. I am, and Aisha too. Thank her for us. Um, I know you're safe now. I uh, I also can hear from you how difficult all of this still is for you, and I wish you and your family um, safety and love, and, and being reunited with your husband. Thank you. Thank you, Pia. Suzanne Harb and her children are among the 350 Canadians' permanent residents and their family members who have been allowed to leave Gaza in the past number of weeks. And this morning, the Palestinian Border Authority says 135 more are expected to be able to leave Gaza today. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Right now, let's take a trip back to the future. I'm Jay Ingram. Welcome to the future on Quirks and Quarks. (laughs) That sounds like the past to me. Actually, that was the past, Jay Ingram. In fact, that was more than 40 years ago on that 1980 episode of CBC Radio's Quirks and Quarks, which you, of course, hosted. And this is what you looked into on that show. How humans may one day live in space, work being done to turn trees into food. And get this, the prospect of personal computers inside our homes. Ah, yes. Personal computers in 1980 when I sat in my CBC office working on a manual typewriter to write the script. (laughs) Well, let's fast forward a few decades to today because Canadian science journalist Jay Ingram, who you're hearing there, has just published his 20th book. And get this, it's about the future. It covers... (laughs) It covers... Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. No, it's great. It covers everything from uh, AI to agriculture, and it's called The Future of Us, The Science of What We'll Eat, Where We'll Live, and Who We'll Be. Jay Ingram, hi, officially. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm good. You know, the first question I was going to ask you is, um, do you remember that episode of Quirks about... It's it's, it's literally in quotes, the future. (laughs) Not really. Um, I am amused by the fact that we were going to talk about will we be living in space? Because really, that's still a question that is kind of unanswered, which just goes to show why you shouldn't really talk much about the future. (laughs) And yet, here you and I are, because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about, because you're looking into the future again in this book from current day, the perspective of the 2020s. So again, we're not coming back in, you know, whatever that was, 40 years, you and I, Jay, to talk about, like, remember when you said this would happen and ha ha ha, it's not funny. (laughs) Uh, But when you look into the future from November of 2023, what are you seeing? What does it look like? So, you know, with this book, I, I tried to take the approach of sort of framing it in, in, as answers to simple questions like, what are we going to eat? Where are we going to live? 
what are we going to be like physically, human beings? And of course, it turned out as I wrote it that um, those are nice, concise little questions, but they're kind of naive because if you just take the food question first, what are we going to eat? The bigger and more important question is, how are we going to feed a population nearly 10 billion in 2050? And, you know, optimists will say, well, just look back at the Green Revolution of the 60s and 70s, when most accounts will argue that 800 million people were saved from starvation by new technologies, herbicides, pesticides, fossil fuel-powered farm machinery, new irrigation, drawing down water. But of course, environmentalists would look at those four things that I just listed and said, yeah, that's why we're in such desperate straits. Too much herbicide, too much pesticide, draining all the water and increasing uh, release of carbon dioxide from those fossil fuel-driven machines. So we accomplished a lot in the 60s and 70s, but we're going to have to accomplish a lot in a very different way if we're going to produce. And, and this is actually amazing, I think, Pia. The population will only increase by about 20% by 2050. The estimates are we're going to have to produce 70% more food, partly because of people's tastes, you know, as um, people's income rises in various parts of the world their food tastes change. There's, there's an amazing graph you can see of how the consumption of meat parallels the increase in personal income. And while I don't think, you know, everybody's going to turn to meat, we are going to have to find food from other sources served in different ways to be able to accommodate that human population of, you know, some 25 years from now. You know, I'm glad you brought up meat because it wasn't so long ago. I mean, I'm sure I did a million stories on it about talking about lab-grown meat. It was touted as the future of how we'd eat that necessarily hasn't taken off or at least to its full extent. Um, so what does that sort of say about how well, I don't know, we can predict future trends? My favorite go-to person on this is Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke made a lot of predictions, and like every predictor, he got a lot of them wrong. But he had a kind of analytical view of what prediction was all about, and he devised three laws. Uh, the favorite one for me is, if you want to venture close to the limits of what's possible, you sometimes have to go just a little bit past that into what you think is impossible. Because he argued that most of our predictions fall way short of what's actually going to happen. We just don't have the imagination. Think about that uh, Quirks program in 1980. Um, you know, would I have been able to say that, you know, I'm wearing a watch right now that I can answer the phone on? No one was actually predicting it. So prediction is very difficult. Okay, you've write about a lot of things, so I kind of want to just jump into this one, because I think it's hard to talk about the future again from the point of 2023 without talking about Elon Musk. And I don't want to talk about Elon Musk, the person as much, rather the, the kinds of things he's working on. Um, so he's announced his Neuralink company, which is recruiting human subjects to test its brain implant technology. Now, I've just said that, and I don't really know what I'm saying there. So what's the idea behind Neuralink? <laughs> um, you know... Um I don't like to quote them either, but two parts to this answer. First, Neuralink. They've done some pretty advanced work 
on uh, mostly with macaque monkeys, whom they've been accused of covering up the deaths of these monkeys by perhaps not the most careful care uh, of them. Wired magazine published a big expose about Neuralink's uh, macaques uh, about three weeks ago. The day before, Elon Musk went public and said, we're recruiting our first human neural implant, brain implant uh, patient. And we think that these will ultimately lead to broader broadband communication between people and between people and AI, which is one of his big dreams, right? That we will somehow connect our brains to AI and become super smart. Set that aside. I think that neuro, that brain implants, neural implants are really going to be revolutionary for people who have suffered specific damage that reduces their abilities to communicate. And and I should say a neural implant, at least the Neuralink style, is a metal disc that's actually implanted in the skull, but it has maybe a thousand or more electrodes that get strewn across the surface of the brain. And you can sort of direct where they go if you want to record brain activity in the speech area, you can do that. If you want to record movement, you know, brain activity in the movement areas of the brain, you can do that. And there's a really lovely example of a woman from Regina named Anne, who had a stroke 18 years ago, and has been unable to speak ever since. The stroke didn't disrupt what she wants to say. She can formulate the brain activity that you know, it would, if she could articulate it, but she can't, if she could articulate it would be sentences and paragraphs and so on. But her brain implant, which is not a Neuralink implant, by the way, they're not the only people in this business, records the brain activity that's formulating the words that she wants to say. And with much repetition, the computer attached to her neural implant recognizes the words she's trying to say and articulates them, speaks them. So for the first time in 18 years, she's able to have conversations with people. Now, you know, they're not at the speed that she would be capable of if she were still able to speak, but nonetheless. So you think about the number of people who with neurodegenerative disease or stroke or whatever that's impaired their ability to communicate, I think implants are going to be fantastic. Whether Elon Musk's dream that we're going to talk to AI and absorb some of its incredible computing power, I have a lot of doubt about that. Uh, you describe a lot of work that's being done to combine technology with our bodies, including on prosthetics, which we found uh, fascinating. How, how optimistic are you about the work that's being done in this kind of area? Of all the subjects in the book, I think that I am the most optimistic about improvement in prosthetic limbs for people who have had amputations of varying severity. And uh, there's a lovely example that people can find online where a ballroom dancer uh, named Adrian Hazlitt, uh, who lost the lower part of her left leg in the terrorist bombing at the finish line of the Boston Marathon 10 years ago. But a guy named Hugh Herr at the MIT Media Lab, who has two prosthetic limbs and is an expert on that, he recruited a little team of four people. They spent 200 hours analyzing the precise 
forces and movements that the lower left leg of a ballroom dancer has to perform, and then created a prosthetic lower leg and foot for Adrian Hazlitt, and she now is able to dance again. And that's actually pretty amazing. The real issue, and again, Pia, this is true of every technology I talk about in the book. Who's going to benefit? Is there going to be equitable distribution of this? And obviously, a ran, you know, somebody that has an amputation is not going to run into a guy from the MIT Media Lab who will then take their case over and design a prosthesis for them. It's going to take time. But the technology, actually, ironically, this is what they said about the $6 million man. We have the technology. Well, you know, the technology is coming, and I think it's going to be, for prosthetics, really great. Yeah, I, I, one thing I really love about this book is, like, it's hope, but it's like, actually, we can get there on a lot of these these issues. And, of course, that brings me very nicely to talk about the future and climate change because um, it, the climate crisis, I should call it, because of all the issues uh, we are facing. And you look into potential technological solutions, so-called, you know, geoengineering projects, carbon capture, so on. What did you find out and what's your verdict on how useful these approaches can be? I think they're going to come too late. Uh, because if you look at all the statistics, while there are, you know, you can always find a handful of promising steps. You know, emissions maybe seem to be peaking. And then you find out that um, China's building a whole, whole bunch of coal-fired power plants. And emissions, Canadian emissions, are not going down significantly. The problem with the two technologies is, uh, one, which is a good technology, I think, is trying to capture and bury carbon dioxide just from the ambient air around us. The technological challenge is that it's only 0.04% of the atmosphere, so you're trying to capture an incredibly dilute gas, not to mention capture it efficiently so that companies will actually participate in this and then be able to bury it in the ground where it never escapes to the atmosphere again. I think these will come online, but it's going to take decades. And do we have decades is the question. And I don't think we do. Uh, so geoengineering has an advantage in that if you deposit sulfate particles, as an example, in the upper atmosphere, you will intercept sunlight and you will cool the planet. We know that from previous volcanic eruptions like Mount Pinatubo years ago when it erupted the global temperature dropped two degrees Celsius in the weeks after. The problem is it's risky. You know, we don't really know, and people are even reluctant to do the experiments that would let us know how well can we control this? Can we really limit it to certain areas of the world? Let's say we wanted to cool the Arctic, given the, you know, rapid uh, thawing of ice. But could we confine it? to the Arctic, or would it slip down to some over some country that actually doesn't want to be cooled? So this is going to be an issue. It's very controversial. Its advantage is that it's fast. So within a few weeks, if you did this, deposit all these sulfates or whatever you're going to use in the upper atmosphere, you would cool the earth. So there's the dilemma. The other challenge, of course, and you write about this, is like, if we use all these technological fixes to the climate crisis, some of which will bear fruit, others may take too long, others which may not. The challenge is also then that 
maybe we just keep admitting and say, ah, we got all these fixes. We can fix this thing. Yeah. Some people call it the moral hazard. And therefore, that there's an additional layer of preparation that really is incumbent on us to do, which is start reducing the emissions in a significant way first. What are the principles? You know, you talked about predicting uh, the future. You you quote at the beginning, you know, um, uh, the Yogi Berra, the, the Niels Bohr physicist <laughs> quote, prediction is very difficult, especially if it's it's about the future. But what are the principles that you think should be guiding us right now as we decide what our collective future will and should look like? You know, this may sound kind of dumb, but I think, first of all, let's take everything seriously. Let's take climate change seriously. Let's not pretend that we're going to do something, but in the meantime, when no one's looking, just keep emitting more carbon dioxide. So we got to take it seriously. And at the same time, though, there's got to be equity and ethics applied to all of this. I'll give you an extreme example. Lots of Silicon Valley billionaires are putting a lot of money into forestalling aging, presumably so they can live to 150 or 160, or in the extreme cases, they think they might even live forever. And um, before we try and uh, lengthen the human lifespan by, say, 50 years to 150, why don't we think about all of the social, economic, and other impacts that that's going to have? I'm sure there are people doing that, but somehow you don't hear very much about that. And meanwhile, the the research into aging, extending the human lifespan, continues apace. Hmm. So I think that in general, I think there has to be. And what about the um, you know, the the rapid growth of AI? Already, people like Jeffrey Hinton you know, a Canadian, quit Google because he's extremely concerned that we may end up extinguishing ourselves by allowing AI development to get beyond our control. And it's hard to imagine how that's really going to happen when you consider that it is really a country-to-country rivalry to develop the best AI. And I'm not just talking about military applications, although those are obvious, but just economic applications. You know, if, if AI, if we can get AI so smart that it can retune our economy, we will have a global advantage. Who's going to stop? Who's going to regulate it on that basis? Um, so I think I'm not sure that that's the most immediate challenge with AI because AI, you know, as you know, is still full of chatbots that tell lies and don't know when they're telling lies and really aren't reflecting on anything and hurting people's occupations and hurting people personally in the process. So I think it's got to be a multiple effort to um, fine-tune AI, but fine-tune it for everyone's benefit and not just big companies or Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs. Just before I let you go, and maybe this is being fast also, forgive me if it is, if you could snap your fingers and bring one invention or breakthrough into existence right now today, do you have one? I'll throw I'll throw an odd one out to you, but I think revolutionizing not just the way we produce food, but the consumer acceptance of alternatives to what we're already eating. And I, you know, take North America as a principal example. If you talk about eating insect protein, I mean, the, and I've had this reaction many times, ew, disgusting. It's but, coming up. I've, I've heard some people, you know, people have done it. 
It's getting better. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, there was just an announcement three days ago of two giant insect, I think cricket, uh, producing farms that are being built. And you know, the antipathy to it is silly. Like if you're eating bread that was made with uh, flour partly from cricket protein, you're not even going to know. But the impact on the earth to produce that loaf of bread is going to be hugely less than the way we do it now. I will just say I was just in Mexico last week in the state of Oaxaca, where they eat crickets quite regularly. They were delicious. It's mind over matter sometimes. Yeah, I think that may apply <laughs> to many more issues than just that one. I appreciate you so much for all the good work you've done um, these years, sharing them, uh, all your stories and research and insights with Canadians. And thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you so much. Pleasure to talk to you, Pia. Jay Ingram's new book is called The Future of Us. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you are listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. Now, if you've spent any time on social media since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, you have probably seen your fair share of bland-sounding statements addressing the conflict. From banks and brands to individuals, many seem to feel the need to stake out their opinion and express it online. When Sam Adler-Bell saw platitudes and cliches filling his feeds, it led the writer and podcaster to wonder about this phenomenon known as statement tease. And for the latest installment in word processing, our ongoing look at language, Sam explores how the pressure to put out statements has become a new norm and the effects they have. Statement tease is it's this phenomenon of, of many different institutions, brands, companies, politicians, and even individuals sort of putting out a statement that tries to avoid stepping on any tripwires and satisfies every constituency without saying too much to get the person issuing the statement in trouble. It tends to feel like it was written by committee in consultation with crisis managers and calculated to assuage like several constituencies at once. Really as soon as the attack on October 7th took place in Israel, I noticed that all over my Twitter timeline, my X timeline, there were brands, companies, schools, especially universities issuing these statements, and then people getting really upset by being dissatisfied with them. The president of Williams College, Maude Mendel, had for a while been feeling anxiety about the response the campus community had to various statements that were put out by the administration on both domestic and international matters. And so um, when it came to this current crisis, Williams College president put out a statement that said, I have become convinced that such comments do more harm than good. They support some members of our community in particular moments while intentionally or unintentionally leaving out others. They give some issues great visibility while leaving others unseen. At Stanford, in a similar way, the administration there had been anxious about this constant sort of churn and war over, over statements and counterstatements um, from the administration. And so they made a decision during this conflict, after issuing one kind of not particularly detailed statement, which caused a lot of members of their community to be upset, to issue another statement that said, we're not issuing statements anymore. And then I even noticed that people that I knew, friends, colleagues, seemed to be issuing their own kinds of statements just on, online as if they too had a committee of crisis managers helping them come up with just the right thing to say about this. And I found that really strange. 
I think ordinary people come to adopt the quirks and impulses of statementees because they spend a lot of their time online and sort of seeing how big companies or celebrities or political figures respond to political events in the world. Um, and then it seems like the way one talks about these things is to issue a statement. And, you know, one of the strange things about the internet is that, you know, everybody starts to conceive of themselves as a brand. The rhetorical ticks of statement tees tend to be these very passive words, words like witness, acknowledge, mourn, grieve, testify. And no, those are all good words, and we should be doing those things. Um, but they're also words that kind of demobilize, that sort of put us in a position of a focusing on the pastness of things, things that have already happened, and things that can't be changed. Um, I think another rhetorical tick, they tend to sort of adopt formulations like, on the one hand, X, but on the other hand, Y, or we can think of two things at the same time. So this kind of effort to, you know, preemptively protect ourselves from attack on all sides, this sort of defensive and defended discourse. It's not surprising to see that in the sort of statements coming from like multi-billion dollar corporations if they're putting them out, but it's very funny and weird and almost eerie to see just a regular person you know talking that way on the internet. When a company or an institution or a figure is silent, doesn't issue a statement, then that can be perceived as its own kind of statement, as its own kind of abdication of responsibility. It's become something of a cliche in the past several years, at least in American discourse, to say something like, your silence speaks volumes, or that silence is complicity. And I understand that response. Uh, I understand why some person, figure, institution, even a celebrity that they care about, when they don't say anything about it, it feels like some kind of betrayal. But I also just think our sort of illusion that what's, what's, what's wrong in the world can be resolved if enough people who we admire share our specific beliefs about it and express them, um, that it would be resolved. It feels like a sort of a wish, and a wish that sort of absolves us of, of reckoning with it and actually participating in some kind of political or communal effort or a harder debate amongst people that we actually know um, to figure out what to do. Where did this statement, these culture, this culture of making statements that everybody has to make a statement come from? Well, obviously it comes from the rise of social media, but I think that movements like Black Lives Matter that came into existence kind of coterminous with the rise of social media as a major focus for, for sort of political engagement means that the, the sort of ways in which Black Lives Matter mobilized statements kind of shaped how this all plays out. And I think that um, in 2014, the first round of Black Lives Matter protesting, this was very common, but it became extremely potent um, and common during the 2020 protest uprising. That was supercharged by the fact that we were also in the middle of a pandemic when, while some people, of course, uh, participated in the streets, uh, a lot of people were confined to participating in this social movement online. I think the phenomenon of statementees is relevant because it does seem to be a sort of backward-looking, passive way 
of participating in what might otherwise be an actual debate about what our sort of moral posture should be, what our moral responsibilities are, and really what our, what, how we might want our political leaders to respond to something like this. Statement ease is this sort of quarantined space in which we can war over words and whether people are saying the right things, but it's a space that kind of is in a perverse way sort of comfortingly isolated from the real stakes of what's happening. Sam Adler-Bell is a writer and podcaster. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. She has two Olympic golds and four podium finishes at the World Championships, but Castor Semenya can no longer compete in elite competition, all because of what's defined her in the public eye more than the middle-distance runner's athletic achievements, and that is her gender. Castor was born with what the medical community calls a difference in sexual development, or DSD for short. In Castor's case, it means she has a vagina but no uterus and has higher levels of testosterone than the average woman. And that's made Castor a lightning rod in conversations around gender and sports for years. In 2019, World Athletics barred female athletes like Castor from competition unless they take medication to lower their testosterone levels. That is something Castor has refused to do. Now, she is telling her own story. It's in a new memoir that is called The Race to Be Myself. Castor, hi. Thank you for joining me today. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. You open this book by saying that what most people know about you is based on half-truths or lies, and that for years, you have tried to let your running do the talking. Now your words and voice are doing the talking. Why do you feel like now is the time to share your own story? Uh, I think it's more of a maturity, uh, the growth, uh, knowledge. When you're knowledgeable enough to you know, tell the story, I think is good. But I think the uh, most important thing now, uh, it's about you know, educating you know, people about you know, the differences in uh, each and every individual you know, in the world. We have our own differences. We should own them. Uh, we shouldn't uh, question who we are. Uh, Also, I think it's all about self-discovery, you know, self-management, self-control, owning yourself, knowing what you stand for, you know, having the ability to own your power. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But let's talk about running first, because you fell for running as a little kid in the small South African village you grew up in. What what was it about running? How did you know that was going to be your thing? Uh, I think uh, running comes naturally. Uh, it's genetic, you know. It comes if you are just athletic naturally. Um, you you'll always feel it. You'll always know it. But I think with me uh, looking back into my you know childhood, uh, being able to walk you know at seven months, being able to run around the streets you know at age of four playing you know soccer, uh, being able to challenge you know my males. Uh, you know, counterpart, you know, it's, it, it, it has always been 
that thing that you know you all know that when you are a woman and then you are different and then you are being able to compete you know with males and being able to make them run for their lives especially in soccer <laughs> uh, that's when i discovered that you know i have something special in me and running it just came naturally to me as an african you just say it's more of a calling god does not just give anyone you know he chooses who he thinks it's a rightful person to be able to be the change and for me i'll say from age 6 that's when i discovered that you know what running i think it's it's something that you know uh, will take me you know far and so while you're leaving all the the boys in the dust like running past them <laughs> <laughs> leaving everyone in the dust you're also right about how you knew that there was a difference between you and the other girls your age you had a deeper voice fewer curves yes. typically more masculine features i think you described it as i was sort of like what we would call a tomboy back in the day so as a kid how did that affect the way you saw yourself knowing that you're different it makes you special because how your peers treat you for me they always treated me like I'm a special everyone wanted to be next to me always wanted to interact with me because how I carried myself you know how I respected each and every individual there but also understanding the being I am you know knowing that yes I'm different but I always knew my identity I always knew that I'm a woman regardless of my looks regardless of how I speak you know how I walk you know how strong I was I've always knew I'm a woman. I think it's a special feeling when you know that when you're around people, they always want you there, and it 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 made my childhood beautiful, and I I enjoyed my life because, you know, all those people that I grew up with, they respected me, they accepted me, they appreciated me, and they did love me. And the most important thing is that the support that you know I was given growing up, it was massive. I think the love that they gave me. it was the courage it was the motivation to say look rock yourself love your differences embrace it just be who you are you know mm. and it was beautiful and so there you were caster the woman caster the runner and you start making a splash at the junior track competitions and then when you're in 18 in 2009 world championships in berlin comes around and you won you won the 800 meter world title the first ever in middle distance for south africa That must have been quite a moment for you. You described that day as the day your real story as an athlete began, but not because of that amazing victory. Take us back to what happened that day and how that changed things for you. I I think for me, you know, as an 18-year-old girl comes in the, in the championship like that and then being questioned your gender, being questioned if you are a woman enough. I think for me it was a courage for life. It was the beginning of me being, you know, an idol, being a catalyst, you may say activist. You call them all. Uh it, it, for me that's where I started realizing that you know in life when you do good, of course there will be people talking, you know. Whether you do good, you do bad, you know, they'll talk. But it was all about me starting to build myself, making sure that I stand for something. I stand for pos- possibility. I stand, you know, for positivity because I knew if let's say I started disbelieving in myself, that was the beginning of my failure. But instead of that, I turned the situation into 
greatness. I portrayed, you know, greatness into running. I made sure, like, I make it look like moonwalk, you know, <laughs> like Michael Jackson, you know, dance, you know, does those moonwalks, you know, all those things. I think it, it's more of trying to learn how to differentiate between good and the bad. Uh, then, yeah, that's when I started to know that, you know what, I, 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 I'm something and I'm a great deal. And there was another thing that happened at that race leading up to it. You were asked to take invasive gender tests. Of course. You won. Yes. And when the media began asking questions about your gender, that is really when things started turning. World Athletics had a press conference and its general secretary at the time, a man named Pierre Weiss, said, quote, there's a question of whether this person is in fact a lady. And he said that they'd done these tests and they'd shown you were clearly a woman, but maybe not 100%. I know you haven't watched that press conference, and I understand why. But when you heard that, what was that moment like? Because here you had one, and then this happens. Oh, of course. I think when uh, people are trying to be disrespectful, when people are threatened by greatness, when people see the future... When people see the change, which is I am the change, I changed the game, I changed everything. And for me, it does not mean anything to me because he knows nothing about being a different woman I am, you understand? Living with the differences that I have, you understand? I only know how to be that woman. But for him to show a disrespect like that, it showed me that, you know, the kind of a person he is, you understand? He does not stand, you know, to serve athletes. He's there for he, himself. You described the gender testing you went under um, as humiliating. Yes. Ultimately, World Athletics said it found you had this DSD, this difference in sexual development, which you said was news to you at the time. I, I appreciate that maybe you've processed that now through all these years, Castor, and come to the place that you've just talked about. But at the moment, that must have been awfully hard. Of course, it was hard for, for a young girl to have to go through that because now here you are, you are new in the game and you're being asked, you know, you're not enough. And to process that, it becomes hard because you don't know who to trust. You don't know who to talk to. And now here you are, you need to figure it out how to live through it. And then we go through, you know, everything. There's a, you know, well media, it's local media, you every day on television. And now the depression, that situation gets you in. It becomes massive because that's when you start separating yourself, you know, from your peers. That's when you start eliminating yourself from everyone. And then now you individualize the process and say, you know what, for me to, to handle this situation, I need to step away from you know, the media. I don't need to say anything. I must just observe you know, from the distance and then find it in my heart to accept the situation, to say this is really happening because of reality you know, hits. You know, practically, that's what was happening. So for me, I had to learn how to deal with the human I am how to learn, you know, uh, how to behave with, uh, you know, the human behavior, you know. So for me, I'll say it was hard. It was hell. Yeah. You write that, look, I always knew for myself, thought of myself as female. You write, to be honest, I didn't care then, and I don't care now what the medical findings are. 
But World Athletics said you needed to lower your testosterone levels in order to continue to race competitively. And ultimately, you agreed to take estrogen to do so, which you describe as being analogous to taking poison. Of course. No, it's more like uh, taking a poison (laughs) for you to conform or for you to be validated, you know, to compete into, you know, women's sports that you are women, but the difference is that you just have a high elevated testosterone, you know, which is that DSD, where they say in the medical term. But for me is that when you're young, you're desperate for competition. That's the extent you can go because uh, the only thing that makes sense to you is the language of sports. The only thing that makes sense to you is to go out there, be happy because that's the only place where you are safe. But then when people make it unsafe for you, you start raising those concerns to say, is really women's sports safe for women? Is, is that really important for men to make, you know, to regulate women's sports? Is it right for men to decide what is right for women? What are women doing to make sure that we are safe? We are in a safe spot. You understand? Those are the things that I started raising, you know, as a young girl, and I'm still raising it today. And so, Castor, at the time when you said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take the estrogen, what was that about? Because you just said, like, I knew the language of sports, that's all I know. Was, was that what was driving that decision at the time? For me, yes, that's what was, you know, driving me because you have to understand that I'm still new in the business. The only championship that I ever ran as a senior, it was in Berlin. So for me, it was about making sure that I, I run Olympics, you know, I fulfill my desires. That was the only drive. It was never about me conforming or making sure that, you know, I, you know, I apply to the rules to say I need them to confirm that I'm woman. No, 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 no. For me, it was the desperation for my greatness, which is that was my dream. That was my dream to become an Olympic champion, a world champion, may even maybe be a multiple champion. You understand? For me, that was the reason, nothing else. But now that I've learned that this is nonsense, you can't live with this thing. The symptoms that they came across, you know, this estrogen, you know, therapy where, you know, you, you always have panic attacks. You can't sleep. Your stomach is burning. You're sweating a lot. You eat a lot. You know, you, 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 you start di- discovering, you know, you're, you're nauseous. You know, you cannot, you can't live with this thing because it is stressful psychologically. Mentally, it is draining you. you. You live under depression. So for me, that was the only drive, the desire to be great in running. This is The Sunday Magazine. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with the champion middle distance runner, Castor Semenya. Castor, despite all this, you kept running. You kept winning two more world championship titles, two Olympic golds. But victory also kept the public fixed on, on your body. And you draw comparisons between your experience and those of other black women, people like tennis superstar Serena Williams, who has also come under scrutiny uh, for many reasons, including for her body. What parallels do you see? Yeah, it, it has always been a problem for us women, especially women with a brown skin color. Um, it feels like we don't deserve to win. We don't deserve greatness. We don't deserve to be in the history books, you understand? And that's always a racial issue. I still say it. I repeat it. I have no regret about it. Uh, till 
you know, one individual start understanding that we are one, we are same, you know, we're here for same common goal. And then men particularly should start understanding that women are great. Women are great as they are. And women also, they're given genetically. Those bodies should be embraced. Those bodies should be celebrated like man does you understand so it needs to come into each and everyone's attention to say we as women deserve to be treated like champions to be treated like the greatest you understand so for me if we are given a chance to do that we are given a chance to regulate our own sports not other gender to regulate that I will say, yes, there will be a lot of Serena Williams out there, Osaka's out there, Coco out there, Casters out there to celebrate that. But till that does not stop, then we are having problems. One other thing, you know, you talk about di discrimination and one of the other things you talk about in shaping who you are, and as you say, you carry this history with you. So you're born in 1991, South Africa, just as apartheid is coming to an end. How has that history, that collective experience, um, shaped you and your experience, Castor? I think for me, it's, it's, it's when you start understanding that um, in the world, as well as we are different, but, you know, our differences shouldn't diminish our dignity shouldn't diminish our human rights, shouldn't diminish the respect we have for one another, to accept one another. We are coming from different religions. We are coming from different backgrounds. You know, it, it does not matter where you're coming from. For me, I think it educated me how to treat people with respect, how to treat people with dignity, making sure that, you know, everyone's right matters, everyone's life matters. So now when the situation like this comes, it takes you back to that era again to say, but if this man can do this, it shows that you as an individual, you does not show remorse. You're still acting as the very same you know, person who were acting your forefathers. You're somebody who have done the same thing. Now you're doing it to women. It's so sad that, you know, as a South African coming from apartheid era, now I'm still feeling the same thing. I'm still feeling discriminated. I'm still feeling segregated from other women. You understand? So if you understand the history, you will see that where this thing is going. You know, now you're touching the wounds that you're not supposed to touch. So I think for me, I'll say I've learned about humanity, which is, in you know, where I'm coming from is uh, Ubuntu. You know, you treat people with respect. You love them. You accept them. You appreciate them for who they are. You embrace, you know, their, their, you know, their differences. I think for me, I'll say it shaped up me to be a better person hmm. and also how I see life. Yeah. In 2015, World Athletics Testosterone Policy, it was suspended after a court challenge. But then it was reinstated in 2019 for middle distances, and it requires even lower testosterone levels than the amounts that were required when you were taking estrogen. And so you said, look, 
I am not going to take any medication to comply, meaning you haven't been able to run competitively internationally, Castor. How have you reconciled all this for yourself? You know, you talk about your love for running, how, how, how you saw yourself, you were that athlete, that running is the thing that gave you so much. And now you, you've stepped away. Yes, of course. I think it's uh, more of uh, being matured, knowing, you know, what's your right knowing what is important. I think for me at the moment, my, 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 my priorities lies on leveling the sport, advocating for what is right, making sure that I fight for those who cannot voice out, fight for those who cannot even say anything or fight for themselves, you understand? For me, they stopped me. Uh, I did not really step out, you understand? And uh, I, I, I respect myself to an extent where I cannot repeat the same mistakes where I sacrificed my happiness, my health, just for running. If I have to do the right thing in fighting this injustice, that's what I'm going to do. And I'll keep on doing it. And that's what I will do. And your fight includes taking World Athletics to court for discrimination over its decision, saying it infringed on your human rights by asking you to alter your body. And then... This past July, the European Court of Human Rights agreed that you were discriminated against. Although those testosterone regulations have not yet been dropped, the ruling could still be appealed. You talk about the importance of keeping up that fight. It's very important because at least uh, there are people out there who think that human rights you know, matters the most than just deciding what you think is right. It's a positive you know, outcome because... Even if the Swiss appeal, we will still take this matter to the court of arbitration. We're going to fight this battle till all these men that are in these positions who thinks they have a right to regulate women's sports, they are out of those positions. We still young, we the new generation, we need to show that we know what is right. We know what is right for women's sports. So we're going to fight. You know that gender has become a source of debate in sports with the rise of transgender visibility in recent years. World Athletics has banned trans women from competing in women's events at international competitions. A group of UN experts this fall has issued a policy position urging the rights of all to be participating and to be respected, especially women, girls, LGBT and intersex people. You are not transgender, Castor. You've expressed frustration. You write about this in comparing your situation and who you are with trans athletes. Explain that frustration for me. I think uh, when people are confused, they're confused with the situation. I don't have a problem with trans you know, family. I love them. They're beautiful. They should be included in sports. Everyone has a right to compete. But then I felt disrespected when where the dicks come in, you know, during the proceedings of my case. And then they present and someone comes in uh, as a, I don't know if she's a, an expert or what. And I'm be like, with all due respect, why is it important for well athletics to bring in trans family into my situation where it's totally a different thing for my genetics I'm born a woman with my differences. While when you look at the, you know, 
my trans family. It's a transition. It explains itself that you transition from a place to another, which is, is beautiful, but it had nothing to do, you know, with my case. And the very same person who came in, the trans family, it's a disrespect for her to come and talk nonsense about what she does not know. She does not know how is he's like to be a woman with differences. I don't know how it feels like to be a transgender. So I think there should be a mutual respect, you know, amongst us, you know, as an LGBTQI family to just understand that the issues that are not the same, but we do support one another. Hmm. You write that most people are content to walk the line as it is drawn, to be defined by it, to stay in their place. I am not one of those people. I never have been. Castor Semenya, how do you want all of us to be thinking about our own lines differently after hearing your story? When it comes to drawing the line, I think you should know your identity. I think it comes with self-identity first. Understanding who you are, understanding your purpose, understanding your feelings, making sure that you make yourself happy. That's what I want people to understand that. look, If as an individual, you start studying yourself, you start understanding yourself, how you operate, you know, how to mute your feelings, how to just pause and say, you know what? Hey, I'm Castor Semenya. I'm woman. I'm different. Just embracing yourself. That's how I want people to draw their lines. Be the person that you believe you are. Thank you for sharing your story in your book and with, with me today. It's important that we hear what you have to say, Castor. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Castor Semenya is an Olympic gold medalist and world championship winning runner. Her new memoir is called The Race to Be Myself. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you are listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. The war between Israel and Hamas is now into its seventh week, with so many killed, injured, and missing. The anger and tension is spreading throughout the world, including here in our own country. Police say reports of hate crimes are up in several Canadian cities. On Friday, there was a bomb threat at a Toronto Jewish school. Yesterday, a man was charged in connection with multiple hate-motivated assaults in Toronto, including an attack on worshippers outside of a mosque. These are just the latest instances in the enormous spikes of both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And across our country, leaders are facing the question of what more can be done to combat things. And that's exactly what my next two guests have been tasked to do by the federal government. Deborah Lyons is Canada's special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. She was appointed just last month. Deborah's also a former Canadian ambassador to Israel. And Amira El-Gawabi is Canada's first ever special representative on combating Islamophobia, a role she began back in February. Deborah and Amira, good morning. Hello to you both. Good morning, Good morning, Pia. It's um, really important for us to be talking about all of this, so I'm so glad you're both um, with me and with me uh, together. Amira, let me begin with you. What has been going through your mind this last month or so as you've been seeing how this war is playing out here at home for people within Palestinian, Muslim, and Arab communities? Well, thank you so much, Pia, for inviting myself and Deborah to have this conversation. Certainly, there's just so much pain uh, in our in our communities right now, 
Um, many of us have been watching the images from uh, from the region, from Gaza, from Israel, um, and just feeling enormous amounts of grief. We know that uh, Canadian Muslims, including Canadian Palestinians and Arabs, have relatives, family members, have themselves some been coming and trying to come from Gaza to Canada return here. Uh, so people who've lost, you know, up to 85 and over family members, you know, throughout this crisis, if you can only imagine what that's like to lose that many number of people from your own family, um, it's just it's just astonishing and shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the amount of grief that people are expressing, people are of course watching and have been watching uh, the images that are coming from from inside Gaza, from um, just just the enormity of of what we're seeing is is just a lot to bear. And so. Um, it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult right now. And then, of course, as you mentioned in your intro, just uh, the fear that we have right here at home, uh, where we see um, Islamophobic attacks and assaults and vandalism and harassment, um, and just the the enormity, again, of, you know, returning to a place where, um, you know, Canadian Muslims, um, Arabs, Palestinians are, are worried about their safety here at mm-hmm. home as well. So it's, it's, it's just a very, very difficult time. I imagine. And Deborah, um, what about you? What are members of Canada's Jewish communities telling you about what they're experiencing right now? I imagine it's a, it's quite similar to what Amira was saying. Well, I would say it's absolutely similar in the sense that the fear is there, the pain is there. I think what is even worse is the uncertainty from one day to the next as to how much worse it's going to get. I, I think it's important to point out uh Pia, that both Amira and I were assigned to these jobs before October the 7th. But certainly after October the 7th, the world changed. Certainly the situation in the Middle East changed with the horrific attack by Hamas on innocent civilians. And then from there, we saw this sort of spread across the world, and particularly here in Canada, of a reaction and perhaps even an overreaction to uh, our own our own communities here in Canada. I have been to six different provinces, eight different cities, and everywhere I go, I hear the same pain, sense of loss, certainly the fear, um, and as I said, the great anxiety about what is left to come. I don't think any of us from any community in Canada expected to see such an outpouring of hatred and anger and animosity uh, toward uh, one another, this is not the Canada that we knew. And maybe it was a Canada that we hadn't looked at clearly enough. Mm. So as we make our way through this crisis right now, I think we are seeing that we're going to have a lot of work to do to build or rebuild that Canada that we thought was compassionate mm. and inclusive. What's um We'll talk about the work. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. We'll talk about the work that needs to be done. Yeah, but go ahead, Deborah. Finish your thought there. No, I was just going to say that I think you know the plans that Amir and I coming into our roles to you know work together and to work on a number of different areas like education and law enforcement and social media and all of these critical critical areas, data collection, better research, and so forth, have kind of moved now into crisis mode 
where we really are having to be with our communities, understand their pain, and then look at a couple of areas where intense work is being done. One Mm. is law enforcement. One of the cities I was just in had 24 incidents just since October 7th, and that's just one city. So law enforcement is under, you know, a huge responsibility right now. And then secondly, leadership. We need leadership from all levels of our communities, of governments, provincially, municipally, and federally, of faith leaders who, frankly, I'm a bit surprised have not been as engaged as I might have thought right across the religious spectrum, and, um, and, and, and of, you know, educators in particular particularly, most particularly, universities. So I think what we're seeing is pain, loss, and a huge amount of work to do to build back to the Canada that we thought we had. Amira, um, let me pick up on a couple of points um, Deborah made there um, uh, with you. The first one being, uh, Deborah said that she is not alone, many Canadians, and I think this is very fair to say, are surprised. And I, I don't want to use sort of a cliche, but I think there's a lot of people saying, wait a minute, I didn't this is not my Canada. So are you surprised at what you've been seeing over the last month? I, I have absolutely been surprised. Um, and certainly, um, you know, just meeting with members of uh, Canada's Muslim communities and Palestinian communities uh, over the course of the past six weeks as well. I mean, I'm here in Halifax where I've been meeting with students, staff, community leaders, municipal officials, and everybody um, is expressing the overwhelming anxiety, but also really feeling as though we've sadly seen um, something similar to this before in the sense of after 9-11, our communities were faced with you know, this overwhelming securitization where everyone was having to prove their loyalty. They All of a sudden, our civil liberties were not any more guaranteed that we were um, under uh, suspicion, we were facing um, repercussions um, in workplaces, in universities where, um, you know, Canadian Muslims were were all of a sudden looked as as a fifth column. And unfortunately, what we're seeing uh, post-October 7th here now is that that same type of erosion of our civil liberties are being experienced um, right throughout our society where um, we have had to really be very clear that uh, we, of course, condemn hate and anti-Semitism and all forms of it. Uh, but at the same time, we also have to ensure that people can exercise their freedom of expression, their freedom of assembly, that um, we have the right to uh, see community members uh, participate in peaceful demonstrations in the sense of ensuring that as a democracy, we uh, stand up for these rights and freedoms for everyone, that everyone should exercise them. And certainly, this has been an important message and a, and, a, and a very significant fear where you have people who have lost their jobs um, or been suspended for um, sharing their any type of solidarity with what's happening to Palestinians, um, where we have seen um, efforts to criminalize speech. Um, we have really been worried about this sort of silencing effect um, and an imbalance in the way that institutions have been reacting and responding to the pain that 
both of our communities are experiencing mm. right now and being able to see um, that impact on people's everyday lives. And so what, what we're worried about is seeing, you know, a turning back of the clock. We, you know, many of us in the civil society and in ad as advocates, human rights advocates, have been working for over 20 years to undo the damage of post 9-11. And it just feels like almost overnight, we are going to have to work again to restore what it means to be a Canadian, to ensure that everyone is, of course, feeling safe, protected, and that everyone can fully exercise, exercise their rights and freedoms as any other citizen. And so that's that's been an important uh, worry and fear that we need to also address. And just to underscore your point about um, Islamophobia there, uh, Amira, there's a new Senate report on Islamophobia. It was released just earlier this month. First of its kind, the findings are disturbing, as you say, and as it says, Islamophobia is a daily reality for many Muslims. Here's the other part of it. Canada leads the G7 in terms of targeted killings of Muslims motivated by Islamophobia. On Friday, we saw the murder conviction of the man who ran over a Muslim family in London, Ontario, killed four family members. There was also the Quebec City mosque shooting in 2017. No, of course. I mean, this is very much front front of our, our minds. And in fact, a few days after um, October 7th, there was a young uh, Palestinian-American boy, six-year-old boy, who was fatally stabbed to death in the U.S. And for us here in Canada, that was just shocking because, again, as you've just said, Pia, we have had the highest number of deadly attacks on Muslims in this country than any other G7 nation. Uh, could, could I just add... Look, I, I couldn't agree more with Amira that these incidents that she mentioned are horrific. And going back to the one in Quebec City and in London and certainly the case of the young boy in, in the U.S. But I also have to add that we here in Canada now are seeing an assault on the Jewish community that is unprecedented, whether we're talking about the bombing threats at the school, whether we're talking about shootings in residential Jewish neighborhoods in Winnipeg, shootings in Montreal, uh, whether we're seeing professors spit and yell at Jewish students, whether we're seeing uh, the climate on universities demonstrating levels of anti-Semitism that I have never seen. It is absolutely true that those incidents where these Muslim community was attacked were horrific and the Jewish community stood up and wrapped their arms around the Muslim community when that happened and formed human um, um, uh, barricades around mosques and community centers. I think everyone would agree with what Amir is saying that those incidents were horrific. But what is happening right now in Canada is an all-out assault on the life, the lives, and the safety and the security of our Jewish community who've been contributing to Canada before Canada was created. So I think that we have to be careful about how we're measuring the impacts here and how we are responding to those impacts. I agree completely with everything that Amira said about civil liberties. We want to make sure that the Charter is honoured, but we need some very strong leadership across this country standing up to this assault, not just on the Jewish community, but frankly, to this assault on Canadian values and the Canadian social system that we have spent so much time trying to build. Amir, I just want to get you a chance to respond to that. Yeah, well, I mean, again, Deborah and I are are of one mind and one heart on all of this. Um, we have you know, been in so, so many conversations, um, recognizing, of course, that, you know, we 
just us two uh, are not going to be able to uh, solve it. I wish we could. Um, but what we all we can do is try to bring forward uh, together the concerns that our communities have to highlight that um, that there has been leadership both within the Muslim community to condemn anti-Semitism. You know, there have been many statements in the past few weeks from various Muslim organizations in Canada standing very strong and tall um, with our fellow Jewish Canadians uh, in the face of hate that they are facing, just as we are um, seeing that solidarity as well from members of the Jewish community. And that's, I think that's where we need to land is we need to be able to see each other's pain, feel each other's pain as Canadians, and then bring it all back to what Deborah was saying about our shared values of, you know, respect and dignity for one another, um, looking for the opportunities, you know, to, to, demonstrate um, that solidarity. We've had, for example, um, you know, in cities like London, in Ottawa, in Calgary, um, faith leaders, community leaders, mayors of cities, bring people together to um, express their shared solidarity. We've seen law students, uh, Muslim and Jewish law students at the University of Ottawa, you know, come together in a letter uh, to demonstrate their humanity um, that was actually echoed by other uh, senior lawyers and and legal scholars from across Canada, sort of following the example of our young people. So there's actually, in the midst of all this difficulty, all this pain that we are feeling, there is you know, these bright lights mm. and leaders across Canada, as Deborah has pointed out, leaders, you know, right across society um, in every sphere really need to step up to this moment to see and acknowledge the pain that, you know, all Canadians who are impacted directly by this crisis are feeling um, and find ways to move forward and restore that sense of belonging that is so crucial to all of us. So let's talk um, about what that sort of stepping up might look like from our political leaders. And I'd like to ask both of you on that. Deborah, you mentioned this as well, is that um, whether it's the prime minister or provincial level or municipal level. So in terms of action, what do leaders need to do at this point? Well, I, I think that it depends on where they are, of course, but I think mayors, as, as Mayor pointed out, play a critical role because, frankly, this is playing out at the local level. So I think mayors need to bring their communities together, their faith leaders. They need to bring their educators together and make sure that Jewish students and Jewish teachers are feeling safe in the school system. I think university presidents have a huge role to play. I think that they have felt somewhat limited in their ability to play that because, of course, we all want to respect academic freedoms and freedom of expression. But I think after this, there's going to have to be some reassessment of where we are on the university campuses in being able to support civil and respectful and strong but enlightened debate uh, uh, for our students and, frankly, for for the faculties. I think at the provincial level, we're seeing uh, some progress, at least in uh, four provinces across Canada, Alberta, B.C., uh, now Manitoba, considering, and Ontario just having had uh, announced uh, Holocaust education and more education related to uh, contemporary anti-Semitism and our overall, you know, civil discourse with one another in the school system. So a huge role to be played there by the provincial governments. Um, and certainly our faith leaders, Pia, I, I would love to see, you know, non-Muslim and non-Jewish 
faith leaders step in here to help support us during this very challenging time, when, frankly, we've got to do a bit of a reset here in Canada, because the situation in the Middle East may go on for several months, who knows, and we have got to make our way out of this darkness that has permeated Canada in the last seven weeks in a much better way than what we are seeing day to day. I would lastly just reference PIA Indigenous leaders. They have been through so much and guided their people to a much better place with support of all levels of government. And I think Indigenous leaders can be very helpful here in helping us find a safe space to listen to one another, to heal and to find a way through this. Amira, what would you like to be uh, seen to be done more in an actionable way? Uh, Deborah went through quite a few things there, uh, but everything from political leadership and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, the minister that uh, that we both work with, Deborah and I, uh, Minister Kamal Kira, who's the Minister of Diversity, Inclusion, and Persons with Disability, Disabilities, often says that, you know, diversity is a fact in Canada and inclusion is a choice. And I think if, if there's any moment where we have to put that into action, it's now. We have to look, uh, as Deborah said, across our communities. We have to figure out, you know, who sits where, who's doing what, and how can they bring people together to create that inclusive space. Um, Deborah listed off a, a range of folks, and I would wholeheartedly agree with her. And I would also say uh, to really um, call on our elected officials to um, be very mindful of the way that they are categorizing, for example, peaceful demonstrations, uh, the way that they are categorizing efforts to bring attention to this issue from whatever community is trying to bring attention to it, to ensure that it is done in a way that, again, is inclusive and not smearing our entire communities, for example, as all being hateful. Are, are there sometimes instances where you see hateful acts of, of within our society? Absolutely. That should never be used as a brush uh, of which to brush an entire uh, group or action. And I think that's really key because what's been happening, especially in the online space, Pia, and I'm sure your listeners would, would know for those who still even dip their toe into the toxicity of, of some platforms, the the negative rhetoric and the information, misinformation, disinformation that's online, that's spilling over into our real lives, um, is really creating a very dangerous um, environment for people. And so this is a moment where our elected officials have to demonstrate in actions and words what it means to stand up for those shared values we've been talking about today and ensure that they are not feeding uh, this fuel, uh, feeding those who who are bad actors out there who want division, who want to pit communities against one another. And it's up to all of us to be wise to that. And again, to lean into our shared values like never before, because this is certainly a significant crisis I see. But I'm also very hopeful, as I know Deborah is, um, in fellow Canadians, that this is a moment where we are going to rise to the occasion and demonstrate who we are and why Canada is an example for the rest of the world of pluralism, of um, multiculturalism, and respect for people of all backgrounds, faith, and, and all communities. Deborah, let me ask you about oh, this. The, so, go ahead. I was just going to add, Pia, because I don't want us to run out of time without mentioning it. Uh, and and, uh, and Amira was referencing, you know, leadership that is demonstrating, I think, this sensitivity and, and understanding of, of 
our multiculturalism, of our inclusivity. I have to, I have to give a shout out to law enforcement. I mean, I've been in Vancouver, um, Winnipeg, Toronto, Montreal, Moncton, St. John, other cities, and I am, I'm impressed. I, I mean, I'm sorry that that's where we have to go in this in this discussion to law enforcement. But nonetheless, I have been impressed with how sensitively and I think consciously and deliberately law enforcement has tried to figure out the appropriate interventions for them to be making in an environment that frankly doesn't really underpin their work as well as it might. And I guess this comes back to legislation. And as Amira was mentioning earlier, the last thing we want to have happen during this crisis is that we come out of it eroding our, our civil liberties or those foundations of, of Canadian values that are so critical. But, but I think that we've seen a real response from law enforcement in attempting to do the appropriate interventions. Uh, that That is absolutely critical. Sorry, okay. Kia, no, that's you. okay. I've got a couple minutes, and I, I do want to end on this note with each of you. And Deborah, let me start with you. Um, there is a lot of upset and anger and frustration in our country right now. This conflict shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. So what is your message to Canadians right now? Deborah, and then I'll go to Amira. Go ahead, Deborah. Oh, well, my, my message would be... Uh, that no matter what is happening outside of our borders, we are Canadians. And we are going through an extremely difficult period. We have to embrace one another, listen to one another, and find ways of coming through this. Everyone needs to take a breath, understand, first and foremost, this is a great country with great people from a wide range of communities. We need to take a breath, and go back to being Canadians who are far more committed to a compassionate, just, and dignified society. Amira. I, I would echo everything Deborah's just said. Um, you know, Canada is a is you know it's been my home for many years. Um, I continue to do everything I can to help support what I've always seen as um, an opportunity to live uh, alongside people of all backgrounds, to learn about Indigenous communities, to learn about people who come from all around the world and who bring with them such diversity and richness and contribute to a Canada that we are all proud of, where we can all raise our families. Um, contribute. We've seen, um, you know, again, Canadians of all backgrounds doing this and being able to feel a part of this country, a part of the social fabric to ensure that everyone feels that they um, are seen and treated fairly mm -hmm. is a cornerstone of what makes Canada work. Um, and so I think in a moment like this, um, it is a, a, a test, I do believe, of our values. It mm -hmm. is a test of our institutions. And I, I really hope that we, um, again, rise to this test and ensure that we truly live the values that we have often talked about um, and that will require us to demonstrate, as I said, in our in our word and in our actions in the coming days and weeks. I appreciate appreciate you both, pardon me, so much. Thank you, uh, Deborah and Amira, for joining me this morning. Thanks. Thank you so much, Pia. Thank you. Deborah Lyons is Canada's Special Envoy on Preserving Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Anti-Semitism. She was also Canada's Ambassador to Israel and Afghanistan, as well as the head of the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan. And Amira El-Gawabi is Canada's Special Representative on Combating Islamophobia. For all the latest on the Israel-Hamas war, please do go to cbcnews.ca.
And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Aranda Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technician Emily Kiravazio and studio director Susan McReynolds. Our senior producer is Danielle Grogan. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.